And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. Now, I'm guessing that everybody listening has one or two people in their life, or at least one or two people that they know, who have succeeded despite having the deck of life stacked against them. You know, people who maybe had a poor upbringing or didn't quite have the advantages that other people had, or people who just had inner demons that they needed to exercise in order to achieve success. Now, one such individual is my guest today, Hank Garrett, who you probably recognize from his from his acting work, which includes Car 54, Where Are You?, which is one of the classics from the golden age of sitcoms. He was in, uh, you know, in uh, Three Days of the Condor, famous award winning fight scene in there. He's in Serpico. He's in the cult favorite Max Hedgeroom, which is one of my favorites. Also did some voice voiceover work for G.I. Joe as Dial Tone. Was also in Garfield. So you you probably recognize him from from that end of his life. But early on, he had a, a very difficult upbringing. You know, his book is called Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight. So the Harlem Hoodlum part. You know, how did he go from that Harlem? How did he raise up out of a poor area with not much to go on? You know, being someone who's always getting into fights. Uh, you know, really run-ins with the law. How was he able to take those experiences and transform them into, I think at last count, was six uh, successful careers? So how does that happen? And some of these careers he started while he was in high school. I mean, just a fantastic story, a great book, and I cannot wait to get into some of these stories and see if they're really true. Some of them, you know, you gotta, you probably had to live uh, to believe them, but we're going to get into some of this stuff. We're going to talk about some of the best ones. So Hank, first of all, thank you so much. Uh, Mr. Garrett, pardon me. Let me give you the honor you deserve. Mr. Garrett, thank you so much for being on the show today. One of the things, I mean, I loved reading your book and I have to say, Probably one of the most remarkable things is just how, when you're able to look back at this incredible life that you've led, uh, you know, you are really one of the most amazing success stories I think I've ever read. And I'm not blowing smoke, Hank, because your early life was a little difficult. I think, you know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but by the time you were 19, I think I calculated that you had lived the equivalent of six or seven other full lives before then. <laughs> so uh, that was my take. My takeaway was just the incredible success that you had. Uh, and and it continued to have, and that the deck always seemed to be stacked against you. And I was fascinated by your early life. So tell me a little bit. Let's set the stage here a little bit, Hank. Can you can you tell me a little bit about your you know uh, your dad's an interesting character, your mom's an interesting character. You know, kind of the the pre Hank years as we go into you know your birth and like how you grew up in in Harlem. Yeah, hundred eleventh between Park and Lexington. Wow. We lived in a slum, uh, uh, fifth floor walk up. And uh, 
hated every moment of my life, waking up to cockroaches and rats every day. Every day, uh, we walked into the house and put the light on. The entire wall moved because of nothing but roaches. Jeez. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And if you sprayed, Uh your neighbors would scream, who sprayed? Because the roaches would go to his apartment. (laughs) They just moved around. They were just. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It was moving wall. It really was. Oh, my God. Uh, And I, God, I remember one, one evening, I was still a kid. And I felt a weight on my chest. And I reached for the light, the the string hanging from the ceiling, put that on. And there was a huge rat sitting on my chest. Holy cow. (laughs) And I, it just, it didn't move. It stared at me Uh and I whacked it, it landed and just glared at me before it went walking away. That's dangerous. I mean, that's. I remember, so I, I, w- I went to school in Boston, and I remember one of my RA friends, she, uh, so Boston, we had, the, the people were living in these brownstones, which are right against the river, and as you know, you know, river can attract rats, and I remember this girl told this story about how a rat was in her living room, and it had gotten caught in, like, a trap, um, but, like, it was screaming, like, the entire night in this rat trap, which just, that, that story, like, stuck with me. As being horrible. I mean, I lived out in the country, so, you know, roaches weren't a problem. We did have field mice. But I, I mean, I couldn't even imagine living in a world where, you know, I mean, you, I mean, how hostile is your home environment? And then you go out in the real world and you're, you know, constantly bombarded with bullies and toughs. And, you know, I mean, this is a strange world to like grow up in. And those formative years when your brain is kind of getting put together, uh, you were struggling a lot, Hank. Uh, oh, <laughs> in every, no. You know, every angle. I got my nose busted when I was nine, standing in front of my building, and gang of guys came by, and a kid walked up to me and just bashed me in the face, busted my nose. Jeez. And one of the other uh, gang members said, why did you hit that kid? He said, well, he cursed my mother. <laughs> yeah. Never forgot the guy. <laughs> What's his name? Do you still remember him? What's his name? Let's get him. They called, his nickname was Bullseye. <laughs> Honestly, I never forgot. Yeah. Uh, I started martial arts when I was 11. I, I trained with a gentleman from Korea mm-hmm. in Thai. I studied uh, Taekwondo Hapkido. And then I started pumping iron. Now, I turned out to be this monster. I was getting bigger every day. And I ran into the guy that broke my nose. Bullseye bullseye and i came up to him and i said you know you remember me he said i don't know you man i said uh i'm the guy when he was a kid you broke my nose yeah and you said when they asked you why you hit that kid you said oh he cursed my mother and now and he he stared at me and i looked over and i just said and now i'm gonna kill you <laughs> and he dropped to the ground. Don't kill me, man. Please, please. And he went on like, I, right then and there, I had my revenge. 
<laughs> wow. That is, I mean, that is a kind of a sweet revenge. Although I imagine, you know, it would have been nice to put, I'm not a violent man, but putting, you know, putting fist to face might've been, you know, that might've been, uh, just as rewarding in some ways. Uh, but you didn't need to do that. You had the intimidation factor. Well, so I want to go back. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves here because I, I love the story of your dad. He's kind of this, uh, this strange enigmatic figure, not only in your story, but also your life. And, you know, this is I'm talking about your book um, from Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight available now uh, in, in all good book manufacturers. Um, and I think that this is this is such an interesting story because, you know, he was a Russian immigrant. He came here. For, tell me if I'm getting the story right. He came here. He was a Russian soldier. Ended up getting, uh, you know, a tour here in New York, uh, here in New York. I'm in Los Angeles, uh, here in the States over in New York, just basically jumped ship and started living in New York, met up with your mother, didn't want to get deported. So for a long time, I think he was saying he was your uncle and your mom wasn't your mom. I mean, it was a whole crazy story you were dealing with as a kid. Oh, I did not know. When one time I was very small, my mother had a push cart. Uh-huh. Well, they, they sold fruits and vegetables off a push cart standing there. And a woman came up to her and said, is that your little boy? And she said, oh, no, 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 that's my grandson. My mom is my grandmother. Uh (laughs) A few weeks later, my father's at the door of the apartment, and there's a census taker. And he said, how many in the family? And he said, well, there's a wife, a woman, and her three kids. And who are you? Oh, I'm an uncle visiting. My father's my uncle. My mom's my grandmother. Who the hell am I? <laughs> right. I did not know. Yeah, that's and confusing. And all had this, this incredible anger. If you looked at me funny, I'd, I'd walk over and start a fight with you. I hated. I slept in a cardboard box on the street. Myself and my friend, George. We had twin cardboard boxes and it was you had a similar background yeah and god when i went to school only when i had to mm-hmm. and they said well what is your address and i said i don't know we just moved so i i don't know what the address is and when i remember very young and i had a school how to go to assembly mm-hmm. and my mom took me I had to wear a white shirt and a red tie she took one of my half brother shirts they were 20 some odd years older than me and she tucked and knitted and pinned and I came to school and a, a teacher by the name of Miss Pearsall she said where did you get that shirt and I said, my mom gave me a shirt. Next day, she came and brought me a shirt. She bought a shirt for me, my size. Oh, wow. And I never forgot her. Wow. That's, I mean, that's a, you don't hear that a lot these days, especially in, no. in Harlem. I mean, that's, you know, in, yeah. in New York, you know, there's a lot of people there. People get lost in the shuffle. I mean, that's what's kind of so amazing about your story is that you didn't really get lost in the shuffle. And, you know, I mean, and I want to come back to to this, to the anger situation you had, because it's always, it's interesting to me because anger can be such a devastating, um, 
issue, right? I mean, it, and it's it's difficult when you grow up like that and you always are kind of on guard, right? I mean, it seemed like, you know, you even had, you know, two, two half brothers who one, you know, uh, Murray, I think it was, held you over, yeah. uh, held you, you know, like Suge Knight to Vanilla Ice style, like held you, you know, six stories up by your neck over the edge of a building. Uh, you know, you were like kind of fighting against all angles at all times. Did How did you, was it, was it the comedy that helped you deal with that? Or, you know, because that can be kind of a devastating issue that can consume you. Um, I don't want to get to your, your, you know, your conversation with Sammy Davis Jr. yet, but, um, but how did you kind of deal with that, you know, just in, in life? Uh, humor, truly humor, uh, it saved me from a lot of beatings. Uh, if I was approached by a, a gang, uh, I would start making up stories about the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, where we parked the Maserati and, uh, <laughs> right, yeah. oh, and I said, did you say Maseratis? I said, no, no, mess of rotten. <laughs> and I, I, and they laughed. And they said, oh man, this guy is crazy. And I did that. And Sammy Davis Jr. heard about my making people laugh. He got me up in the cat skills. And I was working at one of the hotels as a God, an assistant to one one of the other gentlemen. Mm-hmm. And I was watching Buddy Hackett and a lot of other comics. And I learned, I learned I could write stuff. And I did. I wound up being Tony Bennett's opening act for four years. Because of my comedy. I think you sold a joke at like 11, didn't you? Didn't you say uh, you sold a joke really early? What, 12, uh, 12 years old to yeah. the Eddie Cantor show? <laughs> yeah. That's not, it's a pretty good joke. I mean, it, it holds up. I was reading, I was like, oh, that's pretty solid. That sort of set up, rule of threes. You got the whole thing going on there. Um, well, so I want, before we get too far away, uh, I want to ask you a little bit more about your dad because okay. I, I just, I, I just found him to be so interesting and he's kind of this character that shows up, he's shadowy, you know, I know you guys didn't really have, you, I know you mentioned you didn't have a lot of, um, part of, you know, part of the issue is you didn't have a lot of, um, FaceTime with your parents. They were working 24 seven, trying to make ends meet. Um, but you know, he was known as big Sam, the world's toughest Jew. Uh, he was in the Russian army. Uh, he was, you know, he's, he was a wrestler as a kid. He was, you know, trained. I think he yeah. was Armenian and, uh, 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 trained by, um, Iran and, uh, Armenia, I think is where he trained. So he was kind of an interesting character, but also your family was strangely connected to everybody. Um, you know, because your mom called in favors for you and you were, you know, you had a guy named Vincent who was looking out for you, who seemed to be, you know, uh, a connected guy. Um, so do you know much about how, you know, you know, pre-Hank years, like how, what, what was your dad really about? Like, what was he, how did he get so much respect in the neighborhood is really my question. Never found out. Hmm. I found out later that my father had another family before he hooked up with my mom. Okay. He had a daughter I didn't know anything about. Uh, my birth certificate, I thought my name, my last name is Greenberg. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. My father took the name Greenberg because he was afraid if he got caught, boom, he'd be kicked out of the country. 
So he took my mother's last name, her married name. She had been married once before her husband passed and left her with two kids, Maury and Saul. And here I show up and it's Henry Greenberg. And I went to school, got married, went into the, uh, got called for the draft. Greenberg. No, man, that's not your name. What is my name? <laughs> Four last names on my birth certificate. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know. I was working a place and gentlemen, uh, I was in the bathroom getting made up to, to get ready for the show. And the door opened up and a guy kind of looked around and he didn't see me behind the partition using a mirror to apply makeup. And when I stepped out of the, the bathroom, a guy grabbed me, threw me up against the wall, up on my toes, wow. holding me by my neck. An older gentleman came up and said, what's going on? And he said, uh, Vincent, we didn't see this guy. He says, you didn't see this guy. Look at the size of him. You didn't see him? Yeah. You and I going to talk. <laughs> Uh-oh. He said, young man, please, please come to my table. I said, okay. I sat there. I didn't know who he was. And he said, uh, let me buy you a drink. I said, I don't drink. He said, why? You don't refuse. I said, well, I have an ulcer. <laughs> he says, kid, kid your age, got an ulcer. Yeah. Oh, no. yeah, I've had a tough life right. here. What do you want? To- <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I spoke like that. Yeah. You know? yeah. And he said, uh, where do you live? I said, 111th between Park and Lexington. And he said, where? I said, 118 East 111th. He said, there are no Garrett's on 111th Street. I said, yeah, Hank Garrett. I'm the comedian on the show. He said, uh, you're either lying to me about where you live or you're lying to me about your name. Got very quiet at that club. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he said, uh, is Garrett your name? I said, well, I changed it. I was a big fan of Betty Garrett, and I took the name. He said, what was your name before you changed it? I said, Greenberg. He said, Green, I said, yeah. He said, is your father named Sam? My father, the fruit and vegetable peddler? This guy, no. I said, yeah. He says, the toughest Jew I ever met in my life. <laughs> he says, when you go home, tell him Vincent said hello. I go home. I did very well. They, he gave me a tip. I said, Pop, I hear a thing. And I said, guy sends his regards. I said, oh, his name is Vincent. He says, I don't know any Vincents. He knows, but he kept calling you Big Sam. 
He said, do I look like Big Sam? Okay. I made a mistake. And then when my father asked me one morning, three o'clock in the morning, to go with him to the market to buy the fruits and vegetables, he needed help because he'd gotten older. Mm-hmm. Um, big. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, we stand out on the subway, on the, on the train station. Nobody there. Guy comes over, pulls a huge knife, a kitchen knife. Jeez. Points it at my father and says, give me your wallet. My father says, oh, no, sure. You want my wallet? Here it is. Reaches into his back pocket and pulls out a hammer. And he went, bop, hit the guy here. The guy went down. And I'm saying, I'm standing with my mouth open. I can't believe what I just saw. <laughs> right. And he says, yeah. you say nothing to mama. Took the knife, threw it across. We got on the train. <laughs> we went to <laughs> and the place. And I'm, I'm, I, I got to tell them. I, okay. And I never spoke about it. <laughs> until now, until you put it in a book. Exactly. <laughs> well, I will tell you, your book is chock full of stories like this, which it's like each one is like almost as unbelievable as the last, you know, I mean, that because that's oh. just one of the stories. Yeah, I mean, and even that market where your mom and dad worked is kind of nuts because there, there were two stories. One was um uh, someone who had been in, in a concentration camp recognized his Nazi oh, like yeah. prisoner prison guard and started screaming murderer murderer as she got into her Mercedes. I mean, this is something out of a out of a, a movie. I mean, this is something oh, that happens in real life. You know, the woman was selling eggs. Oh. They were all like hundreds of eggs, and she would put them in cartons. Uh-huh. And she saw this woman fur coat. In Harlem, and she said, "You, you murdering!" and kept screaming and throwing eggs at this woman. The woman died, jumped in the waiting Mercedes and took off. Yeah, and she came over and spoke to my mom. My mom was consoling her. She said she was a prison uh, head of a prison that we were in and she was the one who was shooting people wow and know and she's here in this country mercedes wow and those were the some of the experiences living on 111 <laughs> i mean that's that story is that story is nuts and there was one other one this this one i think i laughed out loud uh it's a woman named loretta who was uh, a large african american woman i believe friends with oh. your mom uh and so, so you i'll let you tell the story this is uh which involves pro wrestling which is a nice segue but <laughs> tell me about this story well a couple of friends of mine from the Bronx came to pick me up and take me to going to a party or a dance or something. Now, first of all, I was I, I almost wanted to die. We get my friend Stan Goldberg, and we're getting we're going heading to his car, and I had a roach on my shoulder, mm-hmm. and he said, "Oh, hey, please." I don't want any roaches in my car. And the other people in the car, he's got roaches? 
And I said, oh, why don't you guys go ahead, man? You know, I came to the halls, mm-hmm. a lot of merchants in the hall. And they said, no, 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 man. And one of the guys rubbed the stuff off my back. But when they came to pick me up, Loretta is on the stoop. And she sees three, yeah, three white guys. And she said, can I help you? And she, you know, they said, "Uh, yeah, we're here to pick up Hank. You know Hank here? What precinct are you guys in? I said, we're not cops. Uh Uh-huh. You're going to drive in here with a brand new car on 111th and Park in Lexington. And you're going to say, oh, we're just here to pick up a friend. Mm -hmm. You ain't getting into this building, sucker. And she was, she had been a matron in a prison. <laughs> well, that's not the story I was talking about. That's a that's a great story, which sets up this perfectly. The story I was talking about was Loretta was getting food from, I think she was buying fruits and vegetables from your mom in the market. Someone tried to grab her purse uh, and oh. instead she uh, she overpowered him and body slammed him through your mom's fruit cart. <laughs> what she what she did is the guy grabbed her purse yeah. by the handle. She yanked it back. <laughs> now the guy is face to face with her. Yeah. Because she wasn't letting go of that bag. And the guy did not do and she he tried to throw a shot. She took his arm, twisted, reached under between his legs, picked him up, <laughs> boom. <laughs> and when she hit the, the stand, she said to my mom, Ida, I'm sorry. Let's get, get the money out of his pocket to pay for the, all the fruits and vegetables. <laughs> yeah, she robs him. That's so, yes. <laughs> that's so great. Uh, I, mean, what a, I mean, what a story. I mean, you can't even... I mean, it's like it, it's like a it's something out of, you know, it's like an American Charles Dickens story. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like this in Harlem, all these crazy stories, these crazy characters. Uh, you know, I wanted to there's one thing I want to ask you that I don't think I've listened to a lot of your interviews. I don't think anyone's asked you about this and I don't want to bring the interview down, but I found this part of your childhood um, to be so fascinating and, and I mean, incredibly sad, but so crazy was that, you know, when you were a kid and you know, I'm talking, you know, from like nine to 13 or even older, you saw a lot of your friends get killed. Um, you know, I think you found a dead guy under the stairs where you're asleep. You got oh, yeah. you, you kept pigeons and someone got shot you with the pigeons, which I also want to talk about. Um, someone sniped one of your friends coming home. Uh, I mean, this is this is insane. And you also mentioned that um, when you when you went, walked one of your friends home, you saw his dead grandpa at the top of the stairs. You, you've had these yes. ghostly visions. I, I would love to know more about how, you know, how the, all this death in your life affected you. And what about this ghostly vision? Did this happen a lot? You only mentioned it once or twice in the book, but I imagine there's other stories as well. Oh, God, yes. Uh seeing a friend of mine killed on the roof. We had pigeons and there were a lot of hawks flying around. And so one of the guys, a guy named Candy, Candy Candelario, he had a 22 caliber rifle. So he brought it and we're gonna shoot the hawks. And he and a guy named Marino, who was my buddy, Marino said, let me take a shot. 
let, let me, and they were pulling the rifle back and forth. Mm -hmm. And bang, Marino hit the deck. He got shot, killed. <sighs> Candy didn't know what to do. Uh, we said, cool it. Just don't come up for a while, man. Stay away from here. Yeah. But there was no such thing as calling the cops. Well, time went by and we dismantled the coop. And I lived on the fifth floor and the next floor was the roof. Mm -hmm. I went up, I don't know why, but I just wanted to take a look, probably last look. And when I opened the door to the roof, there was Marino standing on the edge of the roof with the long bamboo pole that we used to wave the birds in. We had to have a rag on the end of it and just wave it, they'd come in. And I saw him, he looked at me, I closed my eyes and when I looked again, he was gone and the bamboo pole hit the roof. No, it did? It was a real bamboo pole? Whoa. Yes. That's crazy. I never told anyone. I wanted to tell my mom. Yeah. And she said in Yiddish to my father, he's seen too much. Hmm. Wow. That's a that's crazy. Oh, it's it's it, it was all in my head, I'm sure. Well, not if a bamboo pole's hitting the ground. <laughs> I mean that's Oh yeah. I mean <laughs> unless you're telling you're telekinetic. I mean that's I mean that's the craziest part of the story, right? I mean Yes. Yes. But that wasn't the only time. I mean, you mentioned seeing your friend. I mean, so your connection to Marino, you know, you could make that argument. Right. But I mean, I think you talk about how you walked your friend home from school and you saw his dead grandpa at the top of the stairs. I mean, that's I don't even did you even know him before? No. A teacher asked me to take this kid home. He lived right across the street from me. He wasn't feeling well. So. And I remember it was a gypsy family. I never forgot that. Uh, a lot of the gypsies that lived in the neighborhood and they did car repairs by hand. You know, you got a dent at $3. I walked him home and uh, I saw this old gentleman, my friend, the kid, and I don't remember his name. He said, hey, grandpa. And the man was at the top of the landing. And he just nodded and he looked at me and I'm saying, Ooh. And he says, I'm my grandfather and I think he's pissed at you. Hmm. I said, why? Why are you really? Because you didn't say hello. Because I remember him standing up there and looking at me, really looking angry yeah. that I didn't acknowledge him. So I said, hey, I'm sorry. Should I go apologize? He said, no, no, don't worry about it. My my grandfather died a long time ago. So you both, so you and your friend could both see him? Yes. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> I, I mean, oh, that's yeah. like Sixth Sense type of stuff. I mean, that's, 
Oh, I, I experienced a lot of weird things. Did that continue on past your, your childhood or did that end after a certain point? Oh, yeah. When I was doing Car 54, uh-huh. we just got into the studio. It was the old Biograph gold medal studios in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Prospect and Marmy. Myself and another one of the guys, we got into the upper portion of the studio. It was an old studio, but it was an incredible. What vibes. Mm-hmm. And I looked and I found some stuff from a show called Perils of Pauline. It was a silent series. And I looked and I, I went, to, I went downstairs and we were shooting and it was Al Lewis and then, oh, oh my God, Nipsey Russell, who was a dear friend of mine. And we were talking and suddenly heard a female voice. Now we had no females on the set. And I heard too much noise to see who it was that yelled too much noise. There were no females on the set. Any men with high pitched voices? Anything that could be <laughs> you know, nothing? Oh wow. Uh, huh. no, they said uh, somebody said it was probably the ghost of the girl. The girl who played Pauline. That's not, I mean, these are, these are some incredible stories and, you know, and this is just a subplot, right? These are just things that I picked up on. Uh, but you've had some, I mean, some interesting, crazy experiences. And, you know, and I think, you know, when your mom said you'd seen too much, you know, we, we've barely scratched the surface on the stuff that you saw there, but I want to talk, you know, you've talked about this a few times in other interviews, but I think this is important because, you know, I think when you, I, I think it was, um, the mayor, the I think the mayor of Harlem, Willie Bryant. Your mom told him to to take yes. you out, and you you know tell me about that meeting with him, what that was like, and then meeting Sammy Davis Jr. and how it kind of changed your life because you were at a crossroads at this point. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, this was not too late. Uh, I was picked up by the cops. Mm-hmm. They were looking for a friend of mine, a guy named Lefty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry. These are just, I mean, this is something out of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> I mean, <it's>, <laughs> I mean <laughs> some of these names, I, I love it. They're great. <laughs> Lefty, Bullseye. I mean, this is, I mean, it's incredible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you got to hear the Spanish names. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a nickname? Were you called like uh, One Punch or, you know, or? Oh, no, no, Kike. Oh, Kike. Oh, that was your your girl, your Puerto Rican girlfriend gave you that name, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's, Enrique is my Spanish name. Yeah. It means Henry. Uh-huh. So on the street, I became Kike. Oh, that's great. Okay. So you did have a nickname. All right. So you fit in people. There's someone else telling a story now about this guy, Kike, he used to know. Oh, so I, that, that guy comes over named Willie Bryant. I didn't know who he was. I knew he was the mayor. Willie, I knew the name Willie Bryant, the mayor of Harlem. He had been my mother's customer. Ah. And she was crying to him. That was always in trouble. I'm standing on a street corner with my fellow hoodlums mm-hmm. and smoking. I'm 12 years old. Right. I'm allowed. So you're at three packs a day at 12 years old. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. So he came over to me. He said, hey, man, I want to talk to you. 
And I said, what? And he slapped the cigarette out of my mouth. Oh, wow. He said, you should not be smoking at your age. And I wanted to take a shot at him. I balled up my fist. I was ready to throw a punch. And two mountains came toward me, <laughs> his bodyguards. Yeah. So I thought better about throwing a punch. It was Mount, it was so Mount Fuji said, and Mount Kilimanjaro. Those are my two bodyguards. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they just grunted. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't go off. They just went. Uh, so now. <laughs> Why well, use words when a grunt run. will do the job, right? <laughs> <laughs> grunt and groan. Yeah, yes. yeah. So he said, uh, hey, uh, come on, man. You know who I am? I said, yeah, Willie Bryant, the mayor of Harlem. He said, that's right. He said, your mother's been telling me about stuff that you've been in. You was in trouble, man. You're looking for trouble. I said, I'm not looking for trouble at all. I'm just minding my business. So he looked at me like, you know, like, yeah, mind my business. That's what you're trying to tell me. I'm just going to take a sip. And he said, your mom wants me to take you out. And I said, my mother's putting a hit on me. <laughs> yeah, it's, I was going to say, well, oh, you're not that bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you talk about him, yeah. but that's a different story. Absolutely. So I said, no, dummy. <laughs> he said, I want to take you out tonight. Uh -huh. He said, you got a suit? I said, yeah, I've got a suit. He said, wear your suit. But before you do it, take a bath. <laughs> Every time you turn on the faucet yeah. at the house, you probably nothing but rust. Mm -hmm. So I put on my suit and we went to the Apollo Theater at, on 125th Street. And I looked and the marquee, it said, starring Sammy Davis Jr. Wow. At the Apollo. That's pretty cool. In and of itself. Thousands of people in the street getting to see, hoping to get a look at Sam. We don't go into the theater. We go around the back where there are fire escapes. And we go into the door, backstage door. And Willie Bryan says to the uh, guy at the door, Mr. Davis is waiting for us. Look at the signs, Sammy Davis. Go to Sammy Davis's room, his dressing room. And he says to Sammy, this is the kid I was telling you about. He says, sit down, man. I did. He said, uh, Mr. Brian's been telling me about you. He said, you funny kid. I, I said, no. He said, when you get in trouble, you t start telling jokes. <laughs> right. Get out. Right. I said, yeah. He said, uh-huh. But you're a tough guy. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm tough. He said, tough guys wind up with broken bones and scars. He said, you're beyond that. I said, what does that mean? He said, you're tougher than them. You're gonna wind up going to prison or die. Mm -hmm. I had a 25 caliber pistol in my pocket, 12 years old. As Sam kept talking to me, that gun got heavier and heavier and heavier. It almost ripped through my pocket. 
And he said, this is what we're going to do. I got you a gig. You're going to be a band boy for Lucky Millinder Orchestra. And I said, I don't play an instrument. He said, no, 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 band boy. You put up the music in the proper seats at the end of the gig, fold up everything, put them back in the proper books and in the case. Mm -hmm. Can you do that? I said, yeah. Well, I did a show that evening at the Teresa Hotel and I did, got it right. And Lucky Miller came up to me and said, cool, cool, man. You did a great job. And he gave me 50 bucks. Wow. He said, get yourself some new kicks, shoes. My shoes were torn to shreds. In fact, they had a wide rubber band holding the sole of the shoe on. <laughs> oh God! With my with my suit, <laughs> right? Yeah, which is that's fashionable now, but back then it wasn't. <laughs> you were pre you were you were, you were ahead of the fad. Oh man, I created a lot of things, <laughs> but I went down a floor shine and I bought a pair of floor shine shoes for fifteen dollars, and I gave the thirty five to my mom. That was more money that she had seen in a month or two or or a year. But she, did she, did she wonder if you were selling drugs or did you tell her what you were doing? No, she no. Did she know? She didn't ask. <laughs> okay. No, she didn't ask a lot of questions because she knew that I was always in trouble. Oh man. Yeah. So, uh, Sammy got me a gig up on the Catskills. I wound up spending several years up in the Catskills, but I was now being booked at different hotels. As a comedian? I learned, oh yeah, I learned from the best. Wow. And uh, 20 some odd years later, I'm opening at the Sands, opening for Tony Bennett. Opening night, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin and Peter Lawford and Sam. The whole rat pack. And their ringside. Frank, I got finished. He gave me a standing ovation. And when Frank stood up, everyone stood up. The entire audience. Um, after the job, uh, everyone is running to see Tony except for Sam. And Sam said, you're a funny cat. Well, where do I know you from? You look so familiar. And I said, I'm the kid that you said is going to go to prison and die. He said, that's you? I said, yeah. We hugged and we cried. And he was my angel. Wow. God sent me an angel. And I go, I go to the Anna Marie set it up that I go to different prisons and talk to kids, kids that are incarcerated from the age of 11 to 17. And I got letters from all these kids. And they said, Sammy Davis Jr. was your angel, Mr. Garrett, you're our angel. We're trying to put a, a thing, a place together and it's called Hankster's Kids. Mm -hmm. 
I want to get the kids off the street. I want to give them a place to come to. And if they're hungry, I'm going to feed you. If you're cold, I'll close on you. I needed somebody to do that for me when I was in trouble. And Sammy Davis, he, he, he miraculously showed up. Isn't, aren't those kind of those moments are, it's so strange when you look back, right? And you look at how much that that one event kind of changed the trajectory of your entire life. I mean, you know, do you even in the moment, you know, you're looking back, you know, 60 years now, I know it's a while, but do you understand the gravity of that moment at the time? Or is it only on retrospect where you're like, holy cow, that literally changed the entire course of my entire existence? Yeah, I did have moments of awakening, uh, being aware and incredibly grateful. I've met the most amazing people ever. And I kind of like scratch my head mm -hmm. because I, I can't believe I'm working with Sophia Loren. I'm working with James Coburn. I'm like, James Coburn and I became friends. I'm from the streets, man. You know, wow. I look at these people and I, I say, nah, nah. It's a big dream, man. And I want to wake up. It's it's crazy all the things you've you've accomplished. I mean, and to me, your early life is to me that that's the most interesting part, right? I remember I was looking. Uh, I think you were. I forget what happened. I think you talk about this big crash that you had, right? And that's on page. You're 19 years old. The crash that kind of changed as another big turning point for you in your life. But that crash happens on page 200 out of a 300 page book, and you were like 19 at the time, right? It was. My point is, you know. There's so much of your life took place before you were even out of high school. Um, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, because like I, I'm looking here. Oh, I just want to quickly mention, because I, I don't think I'm going to get a chance to mention this before. You were in a quick draw club with Sammy Davis Jr. later on in life, right? <laughs> like that was what, what yes. you were. You, so you, I mean, that's not even counting what I was going to this, the six careers I was going to talk about. But you also did quick draw with Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, Absolutely. that inspiring with Elvis are like were like what the WTF <laughs> moments in your book. I was like, what is going on? <laughs> I I can't explain. It. <laughs> when I was at, at the Sands and I got the phone call, uh, would you do Elvis Presley the honor of sparring with him? <laughs> a friend of mine was Elvis's opening act. He was a comic. And he mentioned to Elvis that I was into martial arts. And I get this call. And I said, uh, you want me to give Elvis the honor of, I said, I'll give the kid a break. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, someone did it for you. You got to do it for someone else, you know. Absolutely. He showed up with his entire entourage. Right. <laughs> and he in his uniform on this leg it said Elvis on this leg it said Presley uh -huh. spangles and, and you know fringes right. and traditional Japanese gear of course right <laughs> the traditional yeah. yes I'm standing there with my dollar 95 <laughs> gear yeah, yeah. so we talk and he said 
sensei, you give me the honor. And I said, no, no, I'm not. You and I are of equal rank. So please don't refer to me as sensei. Sensei is teacher. So he said, okay, sensei. Okay. He says, oh, may I ask a favor? I said, sure. He said, please don't hit me in my face because I've got a show to do tonight. <laughs> this is moneymaker. Yeah. And I said, I said, I too have a show to do tonight, so please don't hit me in my face. He said, Sensei, if I hit you in the face, it would be an improvement. Oh, he's cracking jokes. <laughs> I said, you know I'm going to kill you. Yeah, right. You, you know that. <laughs> so we sparred. He was good. Uh, he was very good. Yeah. Did you win? How'd that work? Who counted points? Did you, did you let him win? Did you have to go soft on him? What'd you do? No, no, no. Uh, in fact, at one point, the guy in red, who was uh, the leader of his group, kind of sat up because he thought I was going a little too heavy. And, and Elvis went, wow, man, how did you get that shot in? So I said, I faked you out with my left. And I hit you with right my right leg he said wow cool so he looked at red and said no man i'm learning and yet he's he was excellent excellent that i mean how many people get to spar with the king i mean that is that is a i mean a heck of a story and so i want to go back to you know while you're in high school and this is, you know, the martial arts training obviously came when you were nine, led you to, to Elvis. But uh, let's see if I have this right. So between 11 and 20, you were had basically started five careers while still maintaining. You're like a superhero. You're maintaining your cover as like a junior high, high school kid while studying martial arts, doing comedy, powerlifting, pursuing acting and professional wrestling. Um, which we have to talk about because I'm a I'm a huge pro wrestling fan. Why? Oh, I love pro wrestling. Oh yeah, I thought I was going to work in pro wrestling for my life. Um, so what I love about pro wrestling and the stuff in your book is that when you were when you were doing this, and I don't know what secrets you can reveal now, but I think in the book you kind of maintain kayfabe, meaning um, you maintain that a lot of the matches were not scripted. And that, you know, you say, oh, this guy beat me, whatever, which is so interesting because when you were in pro wrestling, the industry was so different um, until, you know, Vince McMahon said, you know, basically came out and said, you know, it's sports entertainment, it's all scripted. But back then when you were coming up, everything, you know, you had to really present everything as being factual. Um, it was a different world uh, when you were coming up, you know. Oh, God, yes. Uh, my mentor was Gene LaBelle. Oh, yeah. It's great. 300 matches and never lost one in judo. He traveled the world beating every world champ. Uh, when we trained, we trained. We didn't kid around. We didn't, you know, talk about, oh, if you apply a, a double hammerlock or if it, uh, and you set up too much. Uh, in fact, I was wrestling Kowalski. The great killer Kowalski, for those who are listening, the Boston, still has a, a school in Boston, yeah. Uh, and he was amazing, very strong. So Gene said to me, uh, if he gets you in a headlock, get out of it as soon as you possibly can, because he really likes cinch it up. <laughs> yes. 
he he wrestled pretty stiff, right? I mean, he was he stretched you a little bit. He was. Oh my God! Yeah, he almost broke my yeah. neck. <laughs> yeah, he did that. What they call a hangman. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I had he did not allow me to rest uh-huh. to lean on him. He held me out by my chin and shook and and. Uh, Oh my God. Yeah. He, <laughs> Although what's funny about killer Kowalski, you tell this great story where you were going to wrestle him and he took you out to like breakfast, to lunch, to dinner, paid for everything yes. was super nice. And then got in the ring and like killed you. <laughs> I mean, oh, I went to shake hands and he slapped the hell out yeah. of me. <laughs> I mean, he was no joke in the ring. <laughs> no, not at all. Oh God. Yeah. It was with his claw. Hole. Yeah. Yeah. Where he tries to remove body parts with his fingertips. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was he was something. I mean, those stories were great. I mean, and it's, you know, uh, and I, I love the fact that you had, you, you didn't make your own ring gear. You had a, a basically a, a set of groupies who were in their 90, I mean, basically, you know, they would be contemporaries to you now, but they're 90, 100 years old. I think you said the average age was 120. Uh, and they were making your ring gear with the sequins and the tassels. And, you know, you had, you had a very, you look like Greg the Hammer Valentine. You had like long blonde hair, you know, you had like the oh, yeah. <laughs> Minnesota farm yeah, boy they, with long blonde hair, by the way. I didn't stay a blonde too long because it was a target. Yeah. The hair, so... Uh, but the funny thing that these wonderful ladies always brought mountains of food yeah, yeah. and all the other wrestlers loved it because I put the food down. I would go wrestle. I came back and, was <laughs> <was gone>. <laughs> and the guys would say, when's your fan club coming again? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. They were good to you. Uh, they were, they were really good to you. Yeah. They, uh, I mean, it was such, it was so great because, you know, then, you know, I think you, you, you knew Chuck Norris, uh, you're in the martial arts hall of fame. You're in the pro wrestling hall of fame. Uh, you were a power lifter. I'm going through some of this stuff quickly here because we're running out of time, but you were a power lifter. You set the New York record for squatting at 750 pounds. Uh, and then that was at 15 and a half, I think. And then you wanted to go for 780 to show off. And then you basically ended the life of your knees at that point. I think you blew them both out, right? Yeah. Blew the meniscus on both oh, knees. God. Uh, but I mean, you're setting world records there. Uh, you know, you've hit the, you're selling, as a comic, you were selling jokes at 12 years old. You, Sid Caesar was a, a mentor as well. Um, uh, you know, in pro wrestling, you I think your last match was against Superfly Jimmy Snuka, which is, you know, Jimmy Snuka. Yeah, that's that's no he's no small. Uh, ended his life in controversy, but um, you know, when you were wrestling him, he was he was quite the main guy. He was a top-notch guy. Yeah, oh, and here oh, here's another great thing about the Wrestling Hall of Fame is you went into the class with Paul or anyone who's a pro wrestling fan knows his name, but Paul Orndorff, Lou Albano, Macho Man Randy Savage and superstar Billy Graham. That's a heck of a class to go in with. Oh, God, I know. And they looked at me because they were calling me the kid, the baby. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, at one time in the locker room, Gene uh, LaBelle said, uh, the, all the guys were in the locker room. And Gene said to me, Hank, they're going to know you knew. I said, how? Oh. He said, the protectors worn inside the trunks. <laughs> 
You weren't on the outside like Superman. You were in your underwear on the outside of your pants. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, and when uh, everyone laughed and I laughed and I, I, I kind of backed up and I felt this massive soft wall. And I turned around, it was Andre the Giant. <laughs> Soft wall, that's the best way to describe him. <laughs> yeah, and he put his hand on my head and his fingers covered my eyes. Yeah, he palmed you like a basketball, but <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, Did he, he lift you up by your head, too? <laughs> yeah, he could have just unscrewed the top. <laughs> right. <laughs> he said, you're a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, you. <laughs> that's that's a compliment uh, uh yes. one one story i want to get to there's so many there's so many stories in this book that i want to talk about but one we have to get to uh because i was looking at your life and you're talking about the cockroaches and the vermin it made me think that like you're you were almost like a rodney dangerfield story right you know it's like i, I grew up so poor the the rats were holding the, the food drive for me you know i mean like <laughs> it's very like rodney dangerfield uh-huh. But you you met him. Please tell me you got to tell the story about you doing a show at his club because I'd never heard anything like this before. It's, it made me laugh out loud. Rodney asked me if I would come in and cover for him because he had a big paying gig at a hotel. He copied a club that I worked in all the time. It was called The Living Room. And Rodney opened a club very similar to this, The Living Room. And it was called Rodney's, no, Dangerfield. So he called and he says, Hank, can you come in and do a few minutes, just cover for me because, uh, and just tell the audience, I'll be back a little later, but I've got a big gig. Well, he was getting like five, five or $6,000 at the Waldorf. So I go in and uh, I walk over to the bar. I don't drink. So I said, can I get a, uh, I guess it was a Coke. It's a tomato juice in the book, but it doesn't matter. But, because uh, I remember oh, thinking like right. it was weird you ordered a uh, tomato juice. <laughs> but hey, get a V8, yes. keep your diet straight. You know, I remember those commercials. <laughs> so he said, uh, it's $11. <laughs> I said, what? I said, I'm doing the show for Rodney. I'm not right. He says, I'm sorry, but Rodney says, if you have a drink, you got to pay for it. <laughs> well, and then I, I think you, there's another story where I think someone else did, I think Tony Bennett or something, he did, he opened an act for him and he, he tried to cut out on paying him too. I mean, that was me. That, well, that was, <laughs> Tony, Tony came in yeah. because I was doing the show. Right, <laughs> right. So Tony and Rodney, has him do a couple of minutes. He says, could you do a couple of songs? And what he did, he said, uh, they asked the bartender, said, oh, do we charge him? He said, yeah, full price. <laughs> he says, he, he's singing songs for you. And Rodney went into his office, put off the lights. Yeah. <laughs> called someone and said, let me know when he leaves. <laughs> I love it. I think the excuse he gave to you was, which is so funny, he said, hey, I got to keep the lights on here <laughs> to, to charge you full price. <laughs> Meanwhile, goes in his office, turns them off and ducks out of paying you guys. 
uh, <laughs> such a great story. Uh, well, so that's funny. So, you know, uh, you know, your, your, obviously your achievements are well documented. You, you were a New York police officer, I think for eight months. Uh, most people listening are going to know you from car 54, your acting gigs. Uh, you were in Serpico. Uh, you did Max Headroom voice of G of uh, dial tone on GI Joe Garfield, you know, the famous fight scene and three days of the condor, uh, which is only rivaled by the fight scene in They Live, I think. Uh, you know, this is, you've had quite a life, and I love focusing on your early life because it's such in contrast, and it shows just how resilient and, frankly, how talented and hardworking you are to be able to overcome all that stuff in your childhood and become an, an absolute success in Hollywood uh, it's just, it's an incredible life. And I got to tell you, Hank, your book, it was hard to put down. Uh, the stories were just unbelievable, but also so entertaining. Uh, just a fantastic book. And just what a great life, Hank. I mean, this it's such a great story. Thank you. Thank you. Well, so how can people get a hold of this book and how can people get a hold of you? Because it's a must read as far as I'm concerned. Thank you. And it's Harlem Dot com. Okay. Do people find you on social media? I think you're on Twitter. Do you have Facebook, any of that stuff for promotion? Sure. Just about all of it. Okay. Well, I will make sure to have links to your social media, links to the book, uh, and, you know, make sure everyone can get a hold of it because they, they've got to read this thing. It's such a great story. Um, I mean, it's, it's really a, a thing of triumph. It's inspirational, Hank. Uh, and I want to thank you for writing the book. And and thank you so much for taking time out and being on the show today. This has just been a wonderful trip. Uh, and I've learned quite a bit uh, about how to live a life and hopefully some secrets of success, Hank. That's what I'm hoping to have learned uh, by osmosis through your book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the, the book could never have happened had it not been for D.M. Smith. D.M. Smith. She's she's responsible for this. And she, would she get you off your butt to write this thing or what did she do? Uh she did. Yeah, she sure did. She said, you know, you've done so many things. Let's get it on paper. Yep. And she sat all, all the things and she said, now, wait a minute. You were 16 and you were wrestling. I said, yeah, but I had to get a license. So they made me 10 years older. <laughs> Actually, I was wrestling pro at 17. And I got a license and uh, I, I was being built for the championship and then had the automobile accident. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't talk much about that, but it changed your life. And I have to say that, you know, it's lucky that the statute of limitations ran out on some of these because there were a couple of shady little things you did to get ahead, like uh, faking your ID, changing your age. Uh, so luckily, <laughs> no one's going to no one's going to nab you for those. But <laughs> but there's some yeah. lots of that stuff in there. Well, Hank, thank you so much for taking this time out. And thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been an absolute honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. You got it. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. 
you're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening.